на трибунах холеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. Zenit completed the double last weekend, winning the Russian Cup final in Ekaterinburg. To discuss that match and more, I'm your host, James Nichols, and I'll be joined by David Sanson. Hello, David. Hello again. And the Englishman in Siberia himself, Andrew Flint. Privet, Andrew. Privet, privet, Ribeata. <laughs> the Senate defeated Kimpke 1-0 at the Centralny Stadium in Ekaterinburg on Sunday evening in a surprisingly close game. The league champions naturally had the best chances as Kimpke only managed a solitary shot on target against the best defence in the country. But they defended very well and were only undone by a late autumn Zuba penalty after Yevgeny Kapon clumsily fouled Malcolm in the box. Right at the death, however, Kimpke almost stole the show as Igor Danilkin hit the underside of the bar with a header almost the final touch of the game. So, Andrew, you were reporting live from the match. How was your day and what did you make of the game itself? Well, yeah, you, you said it very very well there, that it was a much closer game than anybody expected. I mean, Zenit fairly understandably, they were in third gear for most of the game. They knew they had the quality, that's stating the blindingly obvious. Um, but I'd seen the semi-final um, a week earlier when Kimki completely outplayed Ural um, now, most people would quite understandably and legitimately say that that's not very hard to do, but they were extremely well organised. Again, um, I mean, look, I, I could be biased. I could lie and say, oh, it was very close and we were, we were, it was robbed. But no, no, <laughs> Himke him earned the right to be in the final and they didn't look unduly troubled. They were very, very quick counter-attacking. Um, but, you know, I mean, Branislav Ivanovic, for example, this is his last game for the club, and he was sort of strangely distant. He was trying to play 70-yard crossfield passes that were to nobody in particular, and it didn't really matter because then he were always more or less in control anyway. It was a very odd feeling, I'll be honest. This is a cup final, and it was Zanit's only second double, I think, they've ever had um, in mm. their history. And even with the very low attendance because of the restrictions that we currently have in place. When they were awarded the penalty, when they scored it with five minutes to go, when they lifted the trophy, there was there was barely a noise. They were louder just in general phases of the game than actually celebrating lifting the trophy. Um, but, you know, it was it was good to see football and Zanit have fully deserved their double win. And I can't believe I'm saying this, um, I'm going to have to wash my mouth out afterwards, but um, Himke were not so bad, and I think they actually will do okay in the Premier League. I think they could well survive. Um, much as I'd like not to survive, but not much I can do about that now, I'm afraid. But um, yeah, well done. Well done, Himke. Well done, Sadiq. And uh, a successful day all round. Yeah, I, I think I was really impressed by Himke as well. Uh, put a little... Uh, Article on the site, a piece, a new piece about how I believe that Kimki's cup run, playing the teams that they did, defeating Ruben, Orenberg, Ural, and then going toe to toe with Zenit and only falling right at the last minute, really shows that the, although being much maligned recently, they are ready for the RPL next season. Should they keep their stars? Now, David, do you think that they could be ready? And was there anything you were impressed by in Kimki's play? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, as Andrew said, I think uh, Zenit was sort of in control for most of the game, certainly the second half, which is um, the bulk of the game that I saw. I missed a lot of the first half. Um, and, you know, Kimki were only trying to hit, hit teams on the counter-attack, which is obviously counterintuitive to how they got promoted, where they were, you know, scoring goals left, right and centre and were the dominant team against most of their opponents. Um, but it showed that they, they are capable of switching it up and, and uh, when they, you know, come next season to playing... You know the the Krasnodars, the locomotives, the the Zenits that they can you know defend well. I mean, uh, Ilya Lantratov in goal was 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 terrific and brought us some excellent saves uh, in the second half. You know there was a number of chances where I just where it looked like it was destined to go in, and suddenly Lantratov uh, pulled off a save, and there was a couple of excellent blocks. I remember one uh, stop. Uh, the ball was just rolling to Malcolm on the edge of the box, and you think, "Oh, he's going to smash this in!" And somehow, a defender chucked himself in the way of it. I don't know who it was. Um, and you know, well, and then once they did concede, granted they only had like five or ten minutes left, um, including injury time, but they really went for it. And you know, 
they they really came close right at the very death they they you know they hit the post and that ball could have gone anywhere off the inside of the post it was literally the last touch of the game bar um Mikhail Kershkov in the Zenit goal actually met somehow catching it as the ball just rebounded into his chest you know that could have gone could have hit his shoulder it could have gone anyway just like it just went right at his chest having hit the inside of the post and uh and then the whistle went and the, the players were just, you know, collapsed because that was their chance. So, yeah, it was yeah, kind they did of really well, I thought. I just felt sorry for them because it was it was literally like a whisker away. It was one of those ways. It was so unfortunate for them, but every Zenit fan kind of mm. sharp intake of breath. So and dramatic. Ride the luck. Yeah, it was, it was really entertaining. And I think the game itself was quite entertaining. Obviously, as you mentioned, Zenit were quite easily in control. They had... What, Kim Keone actually had one shot on target during the course of the game, which is really largely what he would expect. And I'm not really too surprised about how Kim Key approached it. They tried to shut up shop arguably against the best attack in Russia, and it's completely understandable. They're coming from a league below. But in on Zenit's celebrations, now the kind of went viral around the world now and all over on Twitter of the very least is <laughs> the the outcome of a certain Branislav Ivanovic seemingly lifting the kind of big and heavy but also feeble half made out of glass trophy and the, the dropping it in which the the entire what, lid I suppose you could call it just shatters in, in small pieces and you see like a, a numerous Zenit players kind of picking up the pieces and trying to put it back together which <laughs> I found quite quite funny to watch and and I, d- I don't know if the, the celebrations from that point were a little bit muted. I don't, I don't think it was a case of Zenit not being overjoyed because Semak especially really wanted this. this is a, he never got a double at all during his whole career. I mean, he won pretty much everything across his, his career in Zenit and Siska and so on. And he never achieved the double. So he really wanted that. But I think that like when Andrew, you mentioned there, that it was a little bit muted at times. I think that part at the end kind of, made it all just a little bit awkward, if not great entertainment at the very least? Well, yeah, I think that's that's fair enough. I, I don't, it probably came across me saying like Zanid didn't care about us. I don't mean that at all. It wasn't that. It was more the atmosphere for starters. I mean, the, the Russian Cup final usually gets a, a good attendance in, in the bigger stadiums when it's been around the country. And it's it just isn't possible when you're only allowed 10% of the ground in. And I, But it was... There were little things as well, like the way that the fans were spread out around the stadium was very uneven. There were only about, and I honestly genuinely could count them in about about 30 seconds, but the Kimki fans had about 25 fans on the far side of the stadium, all on the second tier. So it was all distant from the pitch. The Zanit fans were on the second tier as well, all gathered together, not social distancing at all. Um, and the, the entire first tier of the whole stadium was had no fans in it. Uh, they had a cameraman in the middle of the first tier on the far side of the pitch, and then they had one of those screens where they had the live reaction of fans during the games, and it was that's quite a nice little touch. It was fine and everything. Um, but, you know, the, the final whistle went, and they spent about 10 or 15 minutes trying to piece together the Olympbet-branded platform where they presented the trophy and everybody was standing around waiting for it and it's sort of Mm. an already relatively mellow atmosphere was just dissipating fairly sharply and a result that everybody 99% knew was going to happen anyway came to fruition so it's sort of well it was very hard to generate an atmosphere so I don't really blame anybody or anything it's just the nature of the situation as it is but uh, it is a good achievement you know we've got to remember that the Russian Cup is is not an easy trophy to win for the top clubs because they have uh, they have to play away. They often have to go um, far far out east for the first game in the in the competition, and they have to value the league above the cup because you know Europe could be at stake. Um, but it's a neat event, it. So well done. Yeah, I think it's. Possibly just a little bit of issue being in Ekaterinburg. Obviously, it's the Centralny Stadium's famous for muted atmospheres with the Ural fans just never singing at all during any point of the game. Listeners, <laughs> no, I, listeners I mean, will be used to this. <laughs> if, if, this if this was Ilya presenting the, the podcast, then I'd understand, but you know. <laughs> no, I no, but now, on to, 
onto Kimki next season. There's a lot of rumours. I mean, I mentioned myself there that I think this core is quite a talented core. And the, if they keep it together, they, they could possibly contend for putting up a competitive survival push at the very least. Now, there's quite a few rumours flying around that a few players might be off. Artem Poliaris has been linked with moves away. Alexander Cheshkin heavily linked with a move to Ruben Kazan. David, do you think they're going to struggle to keep a hold of some of these guys? Or could they replace them maybe with this new link to Spartak that they have? Well, I'm not sure how, how much that Spartak link's going to come to fruition. Um, but no doubt they'll be able to you know, pluck some players from from uh, from the bigger clubs who aren't needed and and uh, do enough to you know to boost their squad. You know, clearly the squad's got a good enough level probably to to challenge with the bottom half teams. You know, as we well know, um, the mid the mid table is so competitive nowadays that anyone coming up from uh, from the lower tier has a good chance of challenging. Granted, last season Tambov didn't challenge. You know, they sh- they did struggle, uh, but Sochi. Uh, had they not forfeited their last two games, would have been would have been challenging. Um, so so yeah, if, if they can just add a add add a couple of players, you know, a bit of experience in there, um, you know, pick up some guys who aren't needed. You know, we've seen. I know uh, he's much maligned, but uh, Mirzov from from Spartak has had a poor season. But we as we well know from his time at Arsenal too, like he. He can be a terrific player on his day, and you know he had a great season there before Spart- uh, before Spartak signed him. You know, so get him get him to a team like like um, Kimki, who may start to counter attack a lot, and give him give him the play that he had at Arsenal Tudor, and he could be again, you know, a man reborn. So if that was if that was a move to happen, so um, so yeah, we'll see what they do. Obviously, season starts very soon, then the the transfer window goes on. I think until mid October, so plenty of time to do business, but um. There's a lot of games to be played before the transfer window closes, so I'm going to try and get it done sooner rather than later. Yeah, that Spartak link is quite an interesting one. For those who may not have been caught up on this, is that uh, essentially Kim, part of how Kimki were able to accept the promotion into the RPL is that they were given a 10 million ruble reward for reaching the cup final. They secured more regional government funding after negotiations with the Moscow Region Minister of Sports. And the reportedly expected signing of a partnership with Spartak, and it'll be a sporting partnership. And on the Sport Inside Telegram, that claims that uh, Sergei Mikhailov, who is the Minister of Sports of the Moscow Region, has said that they'll allocate 300 million rubles a year for Kimki, and the rest taken over by Spartak. And the attraction of sponsors for the former Fedun's partners will replenish the club's cash desk and the rent of Spartak players. And Mielzov, as you mentioned, was exactly the sort of guy that I had in mind, if this is true in that case. And the, any listeners might want to catch on the site we published this week, the fifth annual RFN Awards. And a little bit of a spoiler here, but Mielzov himself actually got the worst signing of the season because he's, he's either spends half his time passing to an opponent or just on the floor, clueless. But I, I 100% agree. I think moving down the table to a team where... There's less pressure certainly on the on the shoulders, and where the games the style suits more his game, it definitely he needs that just to try and get a little bit of confidence back because he's absolutely bereft right now. But it, going back to Zenit because we kind of haven't really discussed them much here, but in Zenit, what more is there to say? They've been unbelievable this year, and Autumn Zuba once again got them the win, and he's a star man. And next up is another twist in the story of a former Zenit star man in a tumultuous career now of Alexander Kokorin. So from being rejuvenated for a little while under Roberto Mancini, he's since suffered loss of form, been in prison for assault, served a year in jail and spent time on loan down at the Black Sea in Sochi, despite wanting to remain at Zenit. While on loan, he scored seven goals in ten games, including a hat-trick against Rostov kids, in quotation marks, in now he's still in Sochi, reportedly, but has been set to return to Zenit this week in training. He's actually one of the club's highest earners, and the upper management of Zenit do not want him representing the club. And despite his obvious ability in certain circles and certain areas, it's been suggested because of his criminal record, they don't want him representing the club. Now he's been both linked to move a move away to either Spartak Moscow or Lokomotiv Moscow. So David, could you go into a little bit that that transfer rumor on for that one, please? 
I mean, if we're basing it off uh, rumors or sort of you know the stories of the day, it seems like uh, Spartak, the Spartak movie, is very close and may already be set in stone. I think it's like a matter of uh, formality at this stage by the by the by the latest reports. Um, and I think we were all on the pod a few weeks ago and we we discussed Kakorin. We all expected him, or certainly I did. I'm pretty sure you do did, and I'm going to say you did, so I'm not alone on this. Uh, we all expected him to go back to Zenit and uh, to to play foil to um, to to Zubra and Asmoon and and sit in there as a as a as a good player to have as a as a rotational striker in that as that front pairing. You know, we've seen him have a good partnership with Zubra in the past. Um, so you know, why not? But um, it seems like to me that maybe he's being squeezed out of Zenit by the by the powers that be mm-hmm. after. You know his discretion last year, and and going to going to prison, and they've obviously decided to be done with him for good. Maybe it's a bit on his part. Maybe he wants first team football. Um, I think someone had said earlier he's always been someone to chase that. So so perhaps that's part of his reasoning. And you know, there's plenty of clubs who are interested. I'm surprised it would be to Spartak, who you know are are Zenit's biggest rivals historically. Um, but maybe that's part of his revenge as it was against the the uh, the directors and the board there who have who have squeezed him out yeah i must say i'm not really surprised by this if i'm honest i mean obviously kokorin had a very good season down in sochi by the end of the season he actually had the the highest xg per night or the fourth highest sorry xg per 90 after asbu and nikolai komlachenka and juba himself which is no mean feat whatsoever but Every time you think of the possibility of Kokorin and Juba, I mean, you know these two get along very well. They were famously, uh, that famous photo of when they were omitted from the Russia squad, uh, it was them two together, like with their thumbs up, like after, I think it was after the Euros, was it, when Russia came out, fell out the competition terribly and they, they were kind of just like rubbing it all in and the two uh, are said to have a good relationship. But I just think it's a risk that Zenit don't need to take right now. If you now if you put Kokorin in any other team, he's probably good enough to be the first choice striker in just about every other team in Russia. But the two he has ahead of him are so good together and so strong together. I just believe it would be with the baggage that he's got, with the attitude problems that he's had over the years, it's it's really not a risk worth taking for Zenit. And don't forget Zenit are a, a very PR heavy club. They're very much about how they're perceived in the wider world, and especially more so not just in Russia, but in Europe. And that's why the the, the, the the presence on social media, the presence online is is so clean, so clear cut. And this goes against everything that they're trying to do. Andrew, I don't know what your thoughts are on this. Do you think that Kokorin um, would be a good sign-in for the Moscow clubs? Or is this good for Zenit to get rid, maybe? Yeah, I, in short, I think he would be a very good signing for, like you mentioned, he would be a first-choice player for a lot of clubs I mean if you you mention about the image of the the club and the players that represent them that for me personally and I'm this is pure speculation I'm not saying I've read reports of this but that for me would rule them out of a move to Krasadar for example who do need to um they do need a striker in Marcus Berg I believe his contract expires this summer and is I've not seen the reports of him staying I don't believe he's likely to stay and even if he does he's 33 years old so um Ivan Ignatyev of course moved to Rubin so I do think they need an experienced striker in there Ari where if in if and when he comes back from injury would be their only senior experienced striker so um, but we we all know that Sergei Galitsky is equally um, equally focused on the image of his club for a very direct relation to Kukoin. When when Kukoin was uh, well, that incident, infamous return journey, a night out in Moscow after that game, uh, it was Pavel Mamayev and he who were involved. Pavel Mamayev was instantly. Um, uh, it was announced that he would not be part of Krasnodar anymore. And Galitsky was very quick and clear to rule that out. So there was obviously no chance he would go to Krasnodar. But I think just on the pitch, it would make sense. Uh, for Spartak, I, I, I'm not really sure why Spartak think they need him. I think Spartak's attacking lineup is is brilliant as it is. You've got Sobolev, mm-hmm. your target man. You've got Jordan Larson and Ezekiel Ponce. They've both been on very, very good form um, since the winter break 
I mean, I know it's been broken up with the coronavirus pause and all that. Um, I'm not really sure where Kokorin fits into that um, starting lineup on the pitch. Uh, and that's just my opinion. Lokomotiv could do him the most for me. Um, Edda is, well, Edda is Edda. I mean, <laughs> any team with Edda in their lineup needs a, needs a striker. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Komlichenka is is a good solid target for Dynamo Moscow, and he's not likely to be replaced. Um, so I think Lokomotiv would be the more, I think it would be the best fit, personally. Um, but to answer your question, so it's a long-winded way of getting around to it, but yes, he would be a very good signing, I think, for the Moscow clubs. I'm not entirely surprised that Zanita not clinging on to him because I actually, like you just mentioned, um, when you've got Zuba and Asmoon as a partnership, unless there is a deal in place for one of them already to leave the club, where, where does Kukoin fit into that? He, he, in a 4-4-2 that Samak plays, um, Kukoin's not a wide midfielder. He's a forward, not a wide midfielder. He just wouldn't fit into the lineup, and you've got a very highly paid player twiddling his thumbs. So I, I can understand why Sadiq wants to get rid, but... For me, locomotive would be, make the most sense. I, I don't think Kokorin wants to be third choice either. He's not the sort of man who wants to be playing second fiddle. No, he is exactly. the star. He's been the star man everywhere in his career. When he was at Dinamo, when he was when he first moved to Zenit, at Angie, even on loan at Sochi, like if Kokorin, he played every minute that he could. He, he is like if if you if he's at your club, as far as he's concerned, he is the guy that's your go-to guy. And at Zenit, he no longer is that, and probably won't be for the foreseeable future if Zuba and Asmund stay. And obviously, Zuba now signed a new deal with Zenit. His future that was a little bit up in the clouds has been resolved. There's no more worries over that. On Spartak, why they want him? It's I think it's the name more than anything. And you know what Spartak are like? They like a big name. They're absolutely desperate for it. And even though the current strike force gels quite well together, they're all a slightly different style of players. You got Ponce, who's more on the shoulder, pace, finishing in behind. Sobolev's the target man. Larson, who a lot of the time plays more as a second striker, a lot more reserved, very creative, very talented player. And I guess I, I, like you say, Andrew, I don't know if Kokorin fits into there personally. And Loco apparently, so according to Sport Express, they claim that some people in the upper echelons at Lokomotive wanted Kokorin. And was even ready to, in quotes, allocate four million euros as a signature bonus to show their why they want him. But the transfer committee at local rejected that option, and various sources are reporting that the decision came from the head of RZD, Russian Railways, Oleg Belazorov, and it's because of this prison sentence that's the monkey on the hanging on his back that he can't get rid of this. It's it's why Krasnodar dropped Pavel Mamayev and why they won't sign. Kokorin. It's why Zenit want red and sent them out to Sochi. It's exactly why Loco have seemingly turned them down. Now, as we all know, Spartak are the absolute crazy house and aren't really run very well. <laughs> but but this, I mean, Shamil Gazizov is a man who's quite an honourable fella. He's, he's a good man. He's softly spoken. And more than anything, he's very good at his job. Would David, do you think this is a little bit of a surprise that Spartak would be so interested with Gazizov at the helm or is it more of Fadun taking charge? Yeah, I mean, I'm in agreement with Andrew. You know, they've got three good strikers there um, in their in their team already. Um, they've got Glushenkov coming back from a good loan at Krylia Sovietov as well. Um, you know, Tedesco plays uh, sort of a five-three-two um, with usually Pods or Larson playing as a as a slightly deeper of the two strikers um, with. With alongside Sobolev, or if you know if Sobolev is is on the bench, then one of those two will, will play higher up in that position. Um, so, so I don't see the need. You know, even if we include Glushenkov, they've got four solid strikers there, um, and it would seem almost certainly that, they, that they'd have to sell one of them because they're not going to be able to accommodate all four all four of them in the squad, um, or five of them in the squad um, at once. I know obviously Glushenkov's been linked away, but that still leaves you with four very good and presumably highly paid strikers in the squad. You know, Kokorin's going to be on monster wages. You expect Ponce is probably on decent size wages too. So, um, so yeah, it's a strange move for me. There, there, there are teams who need more strikers. Um, you know, uh, Lokomotiv have got Smolov obviously returning as well as Ed Air, but 
they still need someone. Unless Smolov can find his form back, then they need someone. And so, yeah, I'm in agreement with you both of you. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Maxim Glushenkov because, to be quite honest, he completely skipped my mind there. Spartak's current big thing right now is he's bringing through youth and as much youth as possible. I mean, sometimes it's kind of bit them on the back a little bit, playing Siska with both uh, Gapanov and Maslov as just looked at, obviously, Zizou was suspended, but they looked a little bit out of depth in that game, especially in such a feisty derby. And they kind of wilted a little bit, if it's fair to say. And it doesn't seem very 2020 Spartak of let's ignore arguably one of the brightest lights and biggest talents at the academy to bring in this guy, as you've right, as you mentioned, is on a huge amount and comes with so much baggage. It's, it's just not worth it. And I think I mentioned in our chat that we have today that it's from a talent-wise perspective, it's exciting that there could be signing someone who is so good, but it's also very ominous at the same time because they don't need him. Is he really that much better than what they've got? And with all the baggage that comes from it, it's just it just doesn't seem sensible. And Ivan Karpov has been generally regarded as quite a good source in Moscow for Moscow football. And he reported on his telegram that Kokorin is set to sign a three-year deal with Spartak and that he's going to receive 3.6 million euros a year, which is a hell of a lot of money. And then a signing bonus on top of that and is expected to be undergoing a medical today. And there's general like circles inside Spartak who think that he is at the training ground today, but others also claim that it's... Well, this a Sport Express story, I quite chuckled at it because the, the exact quote is that sources say that the... <laughs> the Spartak story on Kokorin is just an information attack by Muscovites. So it's it's a bit of a weird one, personally. I don't know if it's just Spartak trying to the, the flex thing, the muscles. One of the things to me is, would Tedesco have okayed this, or was this being done over his head, over maybe even over Guzizov's head as well? Is it being done by the higher-ups in the club, or has he said, is it, has he been asked, like, we were going to get Kokorin, do you want him? Or is he gonna is he gonna turn up tomorrow and say you've got Kukorin? Yeah. Oh, I, I think he would probably be more to the latter. I, well, David, my, I above his head. David, I, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head right there because you mentioned earlier about Gazizov. Shamil Gazizov is arguably one of the best sporting directors in the in Russia, I would argue. The the, the what he's over oversaw at Ufa, the way that he brings in players, the type of players the profile of players. Kokorin is about the polar opposite of everything he's ever brought in. Now, I know it's a totally different kettle of mm-hmm. fish being in charge of an institution like Spartak and a, a small club from Bashkiria like Ufa, but you don't just, you know, Aleppo doesn't change the spot so dramatically overnight. Um, it definitely doesn't smell like a Gazidov decision. Um, Tedesco, he is too headstrong and, I mean, in the nicest possible way, he does like his, the sound of his own voice and his own opinions too much to have another character bigger than his in the squad. Why would he want a character like Coins in the squad? Forget the playing side of it, the character side of it. Um, it, it doesn't make sense at all. I think, I mean, David, you're absolutely right. It really smells like a decision made overhead um, of the people who should be making the decision. Yeah, it's, it's so of... not a Tedesco or Gazizov signing, you know. Uh, yeah. It's so not that thing. A lot of Spartak fans themselves as well are quite annoyed about this on, on social media as well because the, they think back and they look at what came to a head when, in Denis Glushakov's last year at Spartak when it was like one big character against another big character and Glushakov versus Carrera. And obviously Tedesco was not held in anywhere near high esteem as Carrera, but Spartak fans generally find him all right. He's better than Kolonov and I think that's probably the highest praise he will find from most. But it just doesn't make sense why Spartak would want to put themselves through this again. And it's clear as day the decision's not from Tedesco. I mean, the lineup, you, sometimes you think, is that really his decision? Because it's very similar to what was seen under Kolonov before that. And is he being a bit of a yes man? I don't know. But it's just, it just, it's not a smart decision. And therefore, there's probably a 100% chance that it will happen because it's Spartak Moscow and they don't make smart decisions. So. Moving on to the to the Finna L though, if you forget the championship playoffs which are going to be happening soon, that's just a tin pot second tier league. Us real fans, though, the most entertaining and bizarre second tier is the Finna L. 
So luckily that starts again this weekend. And before highlighting a few teams to keep an eye on during the season, I've got a bit of housekeeping to get out of the way first. So the season starts this weekend, the 1st, 2nd of August. And for next year, the relegation and promotion will be the usual structure in place of the two up, two in the, in the playoffs, five down. Six. But for this season, six down. Well, yes, sorry, six down, making it until it goes back down to 20. But for this season only, there's going to be 22 teams taking part instead of 20. And Krillia and Orenburg, both relegated from the RPL, as we all know. And then the, fa- the five PFL regional winners, Ertish Omsk from the east, Velez Moscow from the centre, Akron from Ural, Volga Astrakhan from the south, and Dino Blyansk from the centre. Now only four teams were relegated, Mordovia, Luch, Avangard and Armavia, and that's due to recent financial issues and league position. But only Avangard Kurskart of them can actually afford to play in the PFL as things stand. So that left the division with 21 teams due to the financial instability and the Eastern PFL actually not having a team promoted for the first, or having a team promoted for the first time since whenever. Thus the decision was made to expand the league to 22 and Alania Vladikavkaz were promoted from the PFL South alongside Volgar. So now we're going to take a bit of a deep dive into some of these tw- of these 22 teams. And firstly, one of the teams who were relegated from the RPL in Krylia Sovietov. And then alongside that, Chitanova. So Krylia's manager, Andrei Telalayev, remains in the RPL after actually leaving and moving to Akhmat Grozny. While, as mentioned, Maxim Glushenkov has returned to Spartak after his loan ended. And centre-back Vitaly Lisov has moved to Loko, with other departures set to be confirmed. However, David, it seems that they're looking to Chitanova themselves to actually strengthen. Well, yeah, obviously... Uh... Alive went and uh, straight away they uh, they went and bought in the Chertanova manager um, Igor Osinkin. Uh, it was it was a strange one. I remember um, when I saw the story, I was like, "Nah, this isn't happening." Because only a week before Osinkin had signed a new deal with Chertanova um, to stay on for another two years. Uh, but um, money is money, and uh, maybe he'd only signed it so that Chertanova could get some money. Uh, as part of his move, and uh, you know he's he's gone over to Chertanova now. Um, he's got a couple of players there who we presumably would have worked with in the past in uh, Anton Zikovsky and uh, Artyom Timofeyev, who are both out of the the Chertanova project uh, over the years. And if we're to believe the stories in the papers, they they could be bringing in uh, a whole host more players uh, from Chern- for, from uh, Chertanova, um, seven or eight, you know, first teamers uh, who helped. Uh, Chetanova get into third place, you know, last season. If if the season was to finish, they would have been playing a, a promotion playoff and could have gone up themselves. Um, so yeah, it looks like uh, it's not going to be really clearly a Soviet of next year. It's going to be Chetanova, but they're going to be wearing Krylia shirts uh, instead, <laughs> basically. Is that a little bit depressing? Is that a worry for Chetanova to think they'll be fine to cut through this? It's it's a shame. Um, I, you know, as we've heard from from Chetanova in the past and from Nikolai Larin, they they're a club who needs to sell in order to to keep going. You know, last when was that? Last January, January twenty nineteen, where they sold Umyarov and Glushenkov to Spartak for what was it one one and a half million combined? Yeah, they were quite rightly, or not, you know, quite rightly, but they were basically forced to do that because um, you know their budget is so small. They they live and sustain themselves off player sales. And, you know, thankfully they are a very good academy and do make a lot of player sales. Uh, and obviously with the pandemic, maybe they're they're being pressured into a situation where, you know, they've got to sell some players in order to, to keep going. Um, and so why not sell, you know, if, if Krilly are interested, why not sell some of these players? You know, you've got, you've got to- some players who have been top scorer. You've got a lot of under 21 internationals in there um, who are rumoured to be going... Across to uh, to Korea, you know, Savelli is the striker slash tag midfielder um, who scored a lot of goals over the last couple of years. Uh, Yuri Gushkov, the left back, is uh, Russia under twenty one international, um, and yeah, the rest of them who have been linked: uh, Yezhov, Prusev, uh, Vitchikov, They're all first teamers and regulars uh, for Korea, uh, for Chertanova. Sorry, so um, you know, the, that's the big core of their team gone, but. You know, they'll just usher in the next lot of kids who are ready. Um, they've been using players like Sokolov, who's only 16, and Pinyaev, who's only 15 in preseason. 
uh, and they're both registered and ready to play for the season. So, um, so if that's what comes to comes to pass, then that's what they'll do. And you know, promotion and relegation isn't a big thing for them. For them, it's just about you know getting these players ready for the next stage in their career. And if they have to play seventeen and seven, eighteen year olds, even down to sixteen and fifteen year old kids regularly, then so be it. You know, Sokolov and Pinyov. Pinyov, obviously, everyone is I'm sure aware of by now, despite only being fifteen. But Sokolov is. Very talented, made a couple of appearances towards the end of last season for the first team already. So, um, so we'll see how they get on. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, I think with Krilia, uh, sorry, Chetanov, I've done the same thing. Is that this is just par for the course for Chetanov? They're used to this. They used, like you said, they used to the big players going away and bringing in the next lot. And yeah. I think they're definitely going to go for that, go for down that route. I mean, you can see that. Dennis Pavushin, who was previously the Chitanova under-17 head coach of the youth the, the youth team, and that team became champions of the first season of the Youth Football League and play in the Europa Youth League next season, or this season, sorry. And it's quite clear that because they've appointed Pavushin, they're obviously going to bring in the next group of young lads, just like they brought in the next coach. Yeah. And they, as you say, they're all talented players, and I think they probably should be fine to stay up. And not... Uh, even if they do, like, this might be handy because they don't they don't want to get promoted. Nikolai Laren has been quoted in saying that they can't afford promotion to the RPL. They do not want to be promoted, mm. and they, they 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 themselves have already always claimed that they're not a football club. They're a football school and academy. And I think that's just the mentality of what they yeah. what they are and how they exist. They've always said they'd give it a go. You know, if they if it happened, you know, they they try and get the funding and make it happen. But yeah, it would be tricky. But, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how many of those kids, you know, who are due to play in the UEFA Youth League which, or the European Youth League, which is what, under under 18, under 19, uh, you know, the bulk of their squad, even last year, was no, you know, probably average age of about 18 or 19. So um, it'll be interesting to see how many of those guys are going to play in the FNAO and UEFA, uh, in mm-hmm. the uh, UEFA Youth League. That'll be interesting to see. I mean, boys, I'll tell you you one thing just very briefly. You mentioned, James, you asked David just then, do you think it's a shame that so many of them might move to Korea? I actually, I'm going to suggest a slightly alternative viewpoint on this. I think it's actually, I don't actually think it is too much of a shame because like we just said, they've been perfectly open about, I mean, things would have to change quite dramatically for them to be a club capable of self-sustaining in the top flight. And they've shown their quality already is as almost good enough to be up there. Like you said, they were third last season. Could well, if the season had carried on, have, have ended up in the top two. But that would take a huge amount of change. And right now, they're brilliant at what they do. This could be a chance to... It's that last step up. Credo have an amazing stadium. They have a great facilities. They have a good market. They should get a lot of fans in there. They should be able to get promoted again. And if the Chitanova players are the ones who have got them there, um, then it is it's kind of a vindication of the project of what Chitanova are doing. Because I see them right now, unless their whole structure of what they are, what they do changes, they can't really get, they can't really go much further than where they've got to now. They're going to need a huge amount of um, more funding. Um, the structure of, of, of the players that they have, you know, to, to survive and succeed in the Premier League with 18, 19-year-olds is very, very difficult, um, however good they may be. So they'd have to become a club, not a school. If So if you see what I mean, I, I see it almost as a chance to say, well, look, this is, this is a step further. It's just under a different name, but it's still our academy product. So I think... I think it could be interesting to see what happens um, if a lot of them do move over. And I don't think it's the end of the world because Chitanova, if they keep doing what they're doing, will always produce these these quality players and some will still stay, you'd hope. I I didn't necessarily think it was a shame that they were leaving. I think Mm. it was... The shame for me is more that they're all going to another Feniel side, currently a bigger side. But I think a couple of those players who are are on the move um, have got the ability to probably play in the Premier League already. Um, you know, Sarvelli and Gorshkov, the ones yeah. who, who I mentioned, and Vichigov probably as well, uh, could easily probably slot into a, a lower or bottom half Premier League team. Yeah, um, I agree so I think that. it was more 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 a case of I would have liked to have seen certainly Sarvelli given a go in the top flight. Um, but you can mm-hmm. bet your bottom dollar if he goes to Krulia and that Krulia can keep 
a good chunk of their squad from last year. I know I've seen on social media that players like Zifan, uh, Popovic and Safahadi are flying back to Samara to, to get ready for the first game this weekend. So, mm. um, you know, they're not left, they've not left yet, although some of them maybe will try and angle uh, for a move. Um, but they're going to have a very strong squad, certainly for the start of the season. Um, and if they add the Chertanova boys in there as well, then, then you know, you'd back them to come straight back up, really. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if this is perhaps trying to, let's get some of your old mates, old Anton, to get you to stay at the club. And maybe is this Karelia trying to help Zinkovsky to make up his mind and stay stay for the season? Or is it more so that's just, you know, look, he's off. He's far too good for Finn at L. He's going to get the pit RPL move. Let's get the good replacement in. And there's not really much worse replacement than people like Vladislav Savelli, who brilliant last season. Yeah, I, I, would, I would lean more to that. I think with Litsov... Uh, on his way, and I think rumours are rife about Zinke uh, going to, you know, uh, one of the bigger teams. I know Sochi have also been linked, but a couple of the bigger teams are linked. And you know, he's more. We've seen he's more than capable of playing in the Premier League. Um, the you know, he's far too good nowadays to be playing in the Feniel. Um, yeah. So I'd be surprised if he's there. Um, come come mid October when the transfer window shuts. So moving a bit further down the table, we've got next is. Alania Vladikavkaz. So I mentioned earlier, they were, of course, promoted from the pay for El South. And that was decided upon by the RFU Executive Committee because of how good they were last season, the amount of points, and because essentially they need that extra team due to the financial instability of the other four clubs. Now, the last time the Assetian team played in the Fina L was the 2013-14 season. They were forced to withdraw during the championship. And a little later, the club went through some quite bad bankruptcy proceedings. So now they are a Phoenix club, and it's technically the first time in the L. But Andrew, are you excited to see the Snow Leopards back on the way up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I love, I, I love historical names. I mean, um, I remember seeing Alania when they were well on the way down, or the previous incarnation of Alania, whichever you want to call it, when they they came to Tumen about oh, I'm going to say six years ago in the Russian Cup, um, and of course Tumen beat them, but. There's no shame in that because Jumen are one of the greatest sides in the world. Um, but no, in, in all seriousness, it's it's good for the league to get a name like that. Who don't forget was it 1995? I believe they were Russian champions. 1996. Um, I forget the exact year, but it was 95. It was it was it was in the middle of um, uh, Ali Gurmansev's ridiculous run with Spartak, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Um, yeah. So. I I think it is really good to see to see them in in the Fanel, and I really honestly wish them all the best of luck. And what players they will be able to attract and keep? They sh- they have a huge following. They their fans will create an atmosphere that not many Fanel sides will be used to. And I I've watched in in when Chiman it seems like a lifetime ago were in the second tier, but when they were and the, the attendances can drift around. You know, a few hundred even. Um, some clubs might get a thousand, two thousand. Alania will be will be one of the have one of the highest attendances. So that in itself will increase the interest. So I'm delighted to see them there, and I think they've got a good chance of, of challenging. They're getting a bit more professional now. In professional is a, a bit of a harsh term to use, to be quite honest, because they are a professional football club and always have been. But it's when you move higher or, or lower, if they're lower down the leagues, you get the kind of in any league in the across the world, they're a little like less sort of polished a football club is. And and obviously that old that old Alania team, like Alania have created some incredible goalkeepers of the past, like Chichesov and Janayev both started this the careers at Alania. Uh, Vladimir Gabulov started his career there and is from Ossetia. Now Gabulov himself is actually the Minister of Sport for the Republic of North Ossetia. And he is like one of the driving forces behind the current Alania team and then and now is the actual president or was until very recently, some apologies, he was until very recently the president of the club. And it just shows the direction that they're trying to go in and finally the, the money that they've got back behind them because the, the, the sort of falling apart of the old Alania was kind of a bit depressing and tragic, really, for all of Russian football. It was one of the greats, the old school greats. And like you said, yeah, they won it in 1995, Andrew, and then they were the only team to break up that romance of dominance at Spartak, which is incredible in the 90s. And hopefully they can stay up and get a good challenge together and 
try and get some some good funds back together because they've been in the wilderness for far too long. And quite frankly, last season they were far too good for the BFL South. They absolutely dismantled Spartak Nalchik 8-0 at one point during the season. And if we're on the topic of fallen giants, there's another one now. Torpedo Moscow collapsed somewhat towards the end of last season and missed out on promotion at the end. But in any other normal season, would have at least made the relegation promotion playoffs. They wished an emotional farewell to the historic Edward Streltsov Stadium last week. Is it going to get knocked down as work starts in a new one? A little bit sad about that because it's probably got some of the most beautiful murals I've ever seen in regards to sport outside the stadium. I'd really recommend people who can never seen it and can get there before it does get knocked down to go and see it because it's, it's, it's dated, but it's a really beautiful old school open ball Soviet stadium. So it's one probably one of my favourites in Russia. And as work starts on the new one, they're going to be playing at the Sportivny Golodok Stadium in Luzhniki, which is actually, ironically, also home to Chichanova. And one big miss, though, is in the playing squad as well, as not just the stadium, is the departure of Alexander Rudenka, who was on loan from Spartak. He's went back to Spartak, and he's now actually got that RPL move that we expected Sofeli to get, and he's going to be spending the season at Sochi. Now, he scored 14 goals last season. He was actually the joint top scorer alongside his teammate, Ivan Sergeyev. But it seems that Torpedo have found a, a nice little replacement in Ilya Berkovsky from Omsk. He was a, pretty much the Siberian side's best player. So what's your t- take on Torpedo moving stadium, Andrew? And do you think we've got any possible chances of promotion and we can try and build on last season's success under Ignashevich? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they really have to be one of the favourites of the uh, in the Fenel. Uh, well, they they always will be for this one simple reason that they have the appeal to attract good players. They're they're in Moscow. They're a historic club. I think it's a huge shame about the Streltsov Stadium. I hope a hundred percent agree with your comments about what a beautiful historic stadium it is. The, the way it's it's built into the hillside and the views from the top when you come off from the main road and you're looking down onto the stadium is incredible. The murals, like you say, are just uh, are wonderful. I mean, it's got character to that stadium. Now, I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit surprised as to why they are, uh, why they're knocking it down because the stadium is, is huge. It's big for funny house standards anyway. Um, I can only assume... There's one positive side to it, and that is that if they're going to be knocking it down, the only possible reason could be that they need to have a stadium that befits their ambitions, which, of course, must be, absolutely must be, returning to the Premier League. And not just returning to the Premier League, but establishing themselves and being a force again. Um, so fans of Tabooed in Moscow should at least take heart from that. But it, oh, I, I don't know. It's so hard to remove... I, I'm not a Torpedo Moscow fan. I, I've been to the stadium a couple of times, but just to see such a historic ground um, taken down is, is, is going to be heartbreaking. Um, it's hard to remove that emotion from it, isn't it, James? Mm-hmm. You know, when you've been to yeah. a place, you know the players who have come through. It's Streltsov, of course, the name of the stadium itself, Eduard Streltsov. I mean, there you go. Um, I mean, whatever this... If this, if this stadium is, is going to be rebuilt and Torpedo do keep the funding that is necessary just to get them back up to the Premier League. I have no doubt that they would not just stay in the Premier League, but they would establish themselves. And you never know, in five, ten years' time, we could see them challenging even for Europe. I mean, it's getting ahead of myself, but things can change that quickly in Russian football, as we well know. So um, it is a shame, but there are positives to be taken from it. Well, their new owners are basically that aspirational. They have claimed that they want to get back up there and be back at the same level that Loco are at the very least. That's They've been quoted in saying that in the press in the past. Whether or not that's a little bit of a pipe dream is a is a different matter, but like you say, it's, it's the emotion ahead of anything else. It's just a bit depressing, to be honest, and I would like to see a little bit of that history preserved at the very least if if they do move stadiums and they, they do decided that they are building the new one which in the plans looks brilliant looks like a beautiful stadium but i would like to see the streltsov statue kept the hopefully some of the murals of uh, valentin ivanov of streltsov himself kept it would be really good if they could have that note back to the history and that sort of like heartfelt 
little nod back, even with the obvious passing of time and basically they have to move because the half torpedo doesn't fill like anywhere near the ground. And the one half that they do fill is is fine. But the other half is just an absolute mess. It's crumbling down parts of the stadium and, and it's quite frankly it's quite unsafe and the amount of cost it would take to repair means that they just built a new one essentially because it, it, it was inevitable and they did it now with the new ownership and with the new the, the kind of increased funding that they've had for the first time in a very long time yeah i mean with the with the stadium i was wondering if they could do what um ural did because obviously ural built the new stadium for the world cup but they kept what is it i've never been to a kit Yekaterinburg, but i'm pretty sure they've kept the old wall like around around yeah. that part of the stadium yeah, they, so i they, wondered they... if they could do something with the murals and uh Managed to keep them on somehow and preserve them for the new stadium. I, I think that's a really, I think that's a really good point, um, David. Actually, I mean, like you, James, you said it as well. Um, Ural Stadium has got a lot of stick, but they kept that facade because it's actually a listed building. It's a, it's from the, it's not the actual original building because the stadium. Well, when they started playing, it was 1930. The, the facade was from like 1950s, and these murals at this Strelsov Stadium. I think it's it's an absolute no-brainer. They must be able to somehow build it into the new stadium plans. I haven't actually checked those plans that you mentioned, James, but 100% agree with you on that one, David. Yeah, it'd be cool if they could manage that. I don't know where the new stadium is or how difficult that would be, but um, maybe maybe yeah. get uh, one of our Moscow-based people to re- get them as a registered or a listed object so that they can't destroy them. <laughs> that would be great, actually. But I, I haven't... I must admit the the last plans that I seen, I'm not 100% sure if they were final construction or if they were just the pre-construction like uh, draft plans. But there wasn't anything like that in them to keep a any form of facades. Now I don't know if there was anything to keep them as maybe statues around the ground, like you say around the Otkritia, like you say around obviously the Gazprom Arena. That would be good as well. But it's definitely going to be the, the stadium itself is going to be like a whole 100% new build and it does look very good it looks great to be honest but I'm I'm, I'm an old head when it comes to these stadiums I'm, I like the old ones I miss uh, I just miss that atmosphere apart from maybe not the Petrovsky in the middle of winter because it was bloody freezing <laughs> but lastly we'll have a quick little five minutes on the pay for L itself so the pay for L East has actually been disbanded for next season the clubs who would have taken part are now spread across the other four regional leagues, making all of which bigger in terms of both the numbers in each league and the geographical distance between clubs. We're going to have to wait to see if this helps or hinders those out east, but at least now one team in the Finnael cannot be left to die as Luch were. Eastern PFL sides year after year would just repeatedly deny promotion and leave Luch struggling in the Finnael and at times, some of the players actually had to be fed by food banks that were organised on the pitch itself and in the stadium. Such was the huge financial issues at the club. And as of this weekend, the new composition where these teams will be placed and which league they'll be in is still unknown. And thus, the team still do not know their full fixture list yet, at least officially. But David, it seems that you saw an Angie tweet that suggests something different. Well, yeah, I mean... It was um, from their Twitter official account a couple of days ago, which said that the first uh, games of the season will be on the 9th uh, of August, which is the same weekend that the RPO is starting. Um, so I don't know where they got that from. Obviously, uh, it, they tweeted that on the same day that the early rounds of the Russian Cup was drawn. Uh, they did have a different opponent, so I know they've not got it confused. Um so yeah, they, they must, I know Andrew said had told us uh, separately that she may have been told and then told not that mm. it was off and back on again. So maybe it was, you know, just a preliminary thing mm-hmm. or maybe the South just easier to sort out uh, than the rest of Russia. Um, you, you'd struggle to think of one of the Eastern clubs going all the way to the South. Um, you know, you, you'd, you'd imagine they'll try and get them predominantly in the Ural region or maybe the center region. Um, but you know we've got to find out soon, sooner rather than later. I know, um, you know that season's just due to start any minute, really. Um, so yeah, it's, so yeah. it's it's. Um, I mean, I'll, guys, I'll give you my very very brief two men insight. They were told the fixture list, then it was changed, and then they were told it was unconfirmed again. Um, and I know that 
certainly the last I heard, and this is all we can say at this point, the last I've heard or the latest update, um, because it's none of it has been absolutely cast in stone and confirmed, but um, Novosibirsk and Barnaul are due to be in the Ural Povolzhia. And this is the part I find mad, that we've got we've got those PFL East teams. Now, there were, if I, sorry, I may, I may have got slightly modelled up, but we've got five of them that will be in the PFL this season. One has been promoted, right? From six, there were six in the PFL East last season. Um, yeah, so it's like what, Cheetah, Sakhalin, they're the two I can think of. And obviously um, Sakhalin are as far east as you can get in Russia. Um, well, not I mean, this is like the part I find I struggle with is that you, we said that we spread around the PFL. Well, I, how? Why? I mean, geographically, the whole point of disbanding the East is because of their geographical problems. So the only possible solution, surely geographically, would be to put them into the Oral Povolzhia and make a bigger oh, yeah. division. But then, I, I, oh, I don't know. It's I find it hard yeah. to wrap my head around. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've heard the same, uh, but I'm sure I've read things that, you know, some of them could be based out of Moscow. Uh, you know, yeah. even if we just talk about Irtyshomsk, um, Ir- Ir- who got promoted to the Feniel, um, they're going to start the season based just outside of Moscow because their stadium's not up to standards. And uh, they did have an agreement to start the season in Tumen, uh, but that's gone because presumably Tumen need the stadium for the start of the PFL season. So, um it does seem odd that a team like Sakhalin from the furthest point east in Russia, not even on the mainland, could be based out of Moscow the next season. Um, I don't see what that does to reduce travel costs unless they're going to literally, literally base themselves fully in in Moscow, which then doesn't even make them a Moscow-based, uh, you know, it doesn't even make them an eastern team, you know. What's the point in supporting that team when yeah. you live in Sakhalin or Sakhalinsk, you know, and, and your team's playing in Moscow every week? It's it it does seem odd, but I mean, it's it's an it's an unsolvable problem. You know, we've yeah, had it yeah. we've had it like in the Eastern PFL, which seems like the most logical situation, and it's still not working. Um, so they've got to try something else, and this is unfortunately the next thing to try. I mean, I I I one thing I just I I've really got to add at this point is that you you said it there, David. It's an unsolvable problem. Because realistically, to make any team thrive, you've got to have a sustainable structure around it. And it just it just isn't happening out east. Even if you have a team that is in the Premier League. We saw when Luch and Aguirre Vladivostok were in the Premier League 15 years ago and Igor Akinfeyev made his famous comment about they should be playing in the Japanese League. I mean, it's sort of, okay, it was a soundbite, but it wasn't an utterly ludicrous opinion simply because of how far out it was it just wasn't sustainable even in the premier league so how on earth two tiers below that is it sustainable it just it just isn't going to be sustainable i mean i know it's a nihilistic way to look at it but you're right it is an unsolvable problem and i you don't want to deny you know people out far east why should they not have professional football but i don't see how it's possible as part of the russian league system yeah, I must admit I agree that it's it is easily like, it's it's really not an easy issue to solve. The only other countries that have a geographic area the size of Russia's or anywhere near nobody does, but anywhere near the size of Russia's like American sports is entirely regionalized from the ground up until you get to say the playoffs. Now that is one one uh, potential way to solve the issue in that you. Basically, get rid of the Finna L, get rid of the Pay for L, and below the RPL, where it's theorised that the clubs should be able to financially afford playing across a full division, uh, that you then split all of the remainder into different regional zones, and then you split the East into two zones in which it would have an East-Eastern division and an East-Western division, and that would go from places like Omsk in, in the... Povolzhai Ural area, and then the east would be Vladivostok, Klesnyarsk, Kavalovsk, uh, Sakhalin, and that would allow these clubs to thrive the most in the most fair of conditions. Because I mean, look, I can fear, yes, he was joking, but 
quite honest, it's a little bit of typical central Moscow ignorance <laughs> from good old Igor in that, yeah, okay, you do have to fly out there. And it's obviously a pain having to go there because of how far away it is. But just think of them, every single bloody away game, they're the ones who have to fly back. There's a thing called Kakadian Advantage, where it's your internal body time clock. And that works in that it's it's literally advantageous for you to be travelling from west to east, as opposed to is the other way around, from east to west. Whenever you fly in a plane, your jet lag is nowhere near as bad, no matter how long the flight is, if you go from west to east. Because that's just the, because of the way this earth spins, that's your natural Kakadian rhythm, the way your body works. Well, yeah, okay, ego, yes, it is a pain, but feel for them. They're the ones who are stuck out there with no money and have to fly back and forth all the time. And the way to solve it is not just to disband their league whatsoever and just lead and, and whack them in with everybody else and make it an even bigger issue for everybody else. And it, the way to solve it is to actually sit down, look at the issue, and think about it. One way that could be is in the fixture list. Well, you have Omsk who go to Moscow, and then when they're in Moscow, they play Torpedo, Spartak 2, and uh, Chetanova in three weeks, three away games in a row. And then they go back home, a couple of games at home. And then they have the training base in Moscow for that area. Now, yes, it's not an ideal solution because the fans are going to find it difficult to go, but they're going to find it difficult anyway. If it's the best way for allowing the club to survive, then that's how you do it. And then three weeks later, you have them in the, in the southern area of the Finnell, where then they go and play three or four games in quite close proximity, say Chaika or Volga Astrakhan, and then they go back again. Now, they don't even trial these issues. They just disband it and just whack it in with everybody else and just hope for the best. It, quite frankly, it's it's disgusting the way they've trepped the Eastern clubs, whilst also I do sympathise that it's a very difficult issue and pretty much nobody else in European competition who, don't forget, Russian the RFU and Russian football has to compete with they don't have this issue so I, I do sympathize with them but the way they've just been kind of cast off and ignored is it, it's it's quite disgusting actually i think um, once again that's a sorry go on, just, just only in russia comes to mind we need to in. we need to bring that feature of the podcast back the only in russia moment <laughs> Um, yeah, James, you make a very good point there, actually. There are things that I, I wonder how much, I wonder how much, um, communication, how much market research almost in a way they have conducted with fans and other stakeholders other than just club presidents about what could be done. That block of fixtures away from home in a cluster would be at least a comp I say a compromise. It would be something that would logistically help. Would it solve all problems? Would it would save them some money for a start? I mean, if you're flying all the way backwards and forwards every time, but then you you save that by having, like you say, three or four games in a Moscow cluster, a Southern cluster, you're automatically saving a considerable amount of money. You know, people have to remember about budgets especially if you are a football fan based in the UK or Western Europe, that the budgets of Russian clubs are so unbelievably tight. There is virtually no money in the, the TV deals for clubs outside the, the Premier League. And even in the Premier League, it's not exactly high. Um, income from match day stuff is, not, is, is minimal as well. They rely mostly on state budget. So the things like the costs of getting to and from away games accommodation for not just a squad of say 17 18 players but you've got your you've got to take your physio your doctors you've got to take your possibly a, a marketing manager whatever it is all of this stuff that's a lot of people you've got to put up and feed and and get on a plane so you you minimize that you could potentially halve those costs if you make enough clusters well halving travel costs for an entire season is a huge huge difference and it might might well work yeah, it's. I've seen a lot of discourse where it's well, it's obviously a modern issue because it was fine during the Soviet era. Yes, because the Soviet era, all the bloody travel was nationalised and it was dirt cheap. It was completely fine for teams in the east to travel through, and even then, it wasn't all fine. We had eastern teams who were still going out of business every five to ten years. Now, not as much as it is right now, because right now out there, it's just like a wild wasteland of. You hear about teams going out of business every other year or threats of bankruptcy, at least. But 
because the travel costs are inflating year in, year out, it's finding it, it's becoming increasingly more difficult. And that's the one thing that holds them back. And like I say I sympathize. These Eastern teams, they can't they can't fault where they were born or where the club is based. Like that's the club, it's a history, it's there, but there needs to be some form of stronger compromise. That's not just let's cast these off and ignore them and and forget about them, quite honest. Because that's I don't know if that's the case, but that's really from the outside looking in how it seems. <laughs> Once again, that's on the little rant that's been it for the RFN podcast this week. So we'll have a next week. We'll have a little bit of a comprehensive review of the 2021 RPL, which starts on the 8th of August, and a little bit of a look at the Super Cup between Zenit and Loco. And check out the site at RussianFootballNews.com for coverage and games. And uh, I want to say thank you to David and Andrew for joining us this week. No problem. Always, always well, good to be on. Pleasure as always. It's good to hear that Andrew's now the uh, Kimki super fan after praising them so oh, highly God, during the oh. first half of the oh, podcast. Oh, God, don't say that. Oh, oh. <laughs> I've been James Nichols, which is at James Nichols on Twitter. And David, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, I am at RFN underscore David. Andrew? At Andrew M.I.J. Flint, that's me. That's been the RFN podcast. Goodbye for now. Веди его, беги, точнее его удар Но мяч берет ноги решительный вратарь Не напрасно футбольное поле Самых ловких и смелых плечок Здесь нужны тренировка и воля Быстрота, увлечение, расчет